Okay, I can't get out of this chapter. Let's hurry up and finish this up so we can move on with something else, huh? First Kings 17. I think it is so appropriate for where many of us are right now, okay? Uh, it's just that simple, and um, I probably won't even get through it again. Anyway, um, there's some key principles here, and I think these key principles are very important. Words like hide, I want to clarify that. Another word is tarry, T-A-R-R-Y. Wait, slow down, remain, even remain open. I want to talk to you this. Elijah was sent, as we talked last week, to the brook Cherith to, in a time of serious drought to be uh, nourished by the water of the brook Cherith, but also fed by the unclean ravens. We talked about this last week. And um, it's kind of humiliating in that here he is, he's a pretty special prophet, and he thinks he's one of the last few remaining believers. He's coming up against Ahab, this wicked king, and all the prophets of Baal. They're going to have a showdown in about two chapters, and he's now all alone being fed by these incredibly uh, nasty birds. And uh, he's told to hide. So what is this, hide? Are we as believers called to hide? It's an interesting question. I hope to answer it. Um, Aren't we not supposed to confront any and everything that we deal with in life, perhaps? Did Jesus immediately confront everything that came his way? No, he did not. that's an interesting tension there between dealing with things and hiding. What is this hiding business? Uh, are we to shy away from anything? Are we to uh, just go headlong into danger? Is that what we're called to do? That seems a little reckless. Are we to have more bravado and ego than actually a, a situation dictates? Or what are, we, what are we supposed to do, pretend we can handle anything? Who are we anyway? And what is this hiding about? You see, Jesus, I don't know if you would call it hiding, but he's certainly throttled back at certain times when they try to promote him or give him more attention or, or, or make him king. He, he would definitely pull back. He would hide from, I guess, in, in one sense, he would hide from the situation because his time had not yet fully come. You've you got to keep in mind here, there's all kind of prophecies that have to be fulfilled in a timeline chronological for him to actually uh, be resurrected at the end of them all. So you can't skip one of these things. He's, he's aware of the, of the uh, biblical timeline of prophecies that have been spoken, probably, more than anyone, for instance. And uh, he knows when it's time to move forward, when to, but sometimes he has to hide from certain accolades, hide from certain attention. He tries to get people to be quiet, and of course they don't. Of course, he wants, when he doesn't want them to be quiet, they won't do that either. So it's a timing issue with him. It's a learning issue. He wants people to learn certain things of him. He, he wants his disciples to learn certain things of him. He doesn't want to get too far out ahead of them because they're not ready for that yet. Remember, he's going to take the church and hand it to these uh, 11 knuckleheads plus one. He's got to make sure that he's moving this thing along at the right pace if he's going to change the entire world. There's a preparation involved 
Uh, there's a self-sufficiency they have to learn uh, to not count upon. There's a dependence that he wants people to learn that they can't just think that they can depend on themselves or other people to solve every problem in your life. Now, some of you people are pretty sharp, but listen, you, can't, you don't have it all figured out, okay? We all need a dependence upon God. I don't care who you are. And I understand every 4th of July we have an Independence Day, but sometimes if you look at this nation, our independence has gone too far. We've got to be dependent upon him. I would even say that uh, many of us are motivated by extremes. I don't know, are you one of those people that's, when you're motivated, when things get bad enough, you're going you're gonna to rise to the occasion. And if they don't, you're pretty much going to be kind of tepid. Well, we need desperation in our life. There's certain things we need to be desperate about if desperation is such a motivation. And I'll tell you, sometimes hiding in Christ, and I'm going to explain that in a minute, is just what we need. We need to be out by a brook waiting for the water in the middle of a drought to come out of that little brook and some black nasty, bacteria-infested, roadkill bird needs to come feed us a couple times a day, uh, and we get, need to get out of Paoletti's a little bit. Let me talk your language. We need desperation sometimes. You, you look around your life, and you'll see people who went through the Great Depression. They know desperation. They served in our military. They know desperation. They've been through a blue million radiation treatments. They know desperation. They've had a son or daughter who's suicidal. They know desperation. They've lost friends or loved ones in your own family have taken their own life. You know desperation. It's part of life. But we can hide in the natural, but we should cultivate an understanding of Christ as our hiding place. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that. You and I can hide in the natural easily. I used to hide in a bottle or a can. It didn't really matter. Or a keg. It didn't really matter. Or a dark bar at 2 in the afternoon. I could do that. It's fine. I can hide in any of those places. And Jesus says in Psalm 32 and 7, the psalmist says to him, you are my hiding place. Bizarre as that. You are my hiding place. To every person in this room and the sound of my voice today, tomorrow, and years to come, ask yourself this question right now. Where are you hiding and from whom are you hiding? And how then can Christ be your hiding place? You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me in times of trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I've been privileged as a, as a friend of yours and a pastor. I've gone through some pretty nasty things with you people. Desperate things. Yelling in the office. Some real, we've been through some real serious situations. 
The question is, are we hiding from one another? Are we hiding from the truth? What are we hiding? Is he telling the truth? Is she telling the truth? Is, what's hiding? What's, where's the hiding going on here? Hiding has a real negative connotation to it. So let's start out so we can understand it better because if crisis are hiding place and we have a negative connotation of hiding, we need to reconcile those two realities, okay? All right, let's do that. The first uh, big man on campus, I mean, this is not only the big man on campus, the biggest man on campus. This is the most important man on the face of the earth at the time. No question about it. Who am I talking about? Adam. This guy's big man on campus. He sins along with Eve. The first thing he does, the first inclination with the flooding of the transgression of the law hits the modern world. The first inkling of guilt, of remorse, of sin, of dirtiness, of alienation, of loneliness, of, of something's fractured, I don't know what it is. A flood of emotion comes in that have never been experienced before. All of a sudden comes down on the BMOC, the big man on campus. Foreign feelings, tension, something that he's never even thought knew existed has just been delivered, downloaded into his heart, and he's standing there like, oh my gosh, I got to hide. And he does. He heads for the trees. To do what? To cover his shame. He, he didn't, a second ago, he didn't know what shame was. All he knows now is I need to get in the bush. I need to hide. I need to cover my shame. I need to hide, cover my shame. Because I'm afraid. And I don't know what fear is, but I don't like it. I don't want to be in the open with it. I don't want anybody else to know I'm afraid. I don't want anybody else to know where I am. I don't want anybody else to know what I did. Uh, welcome to 2023, Adam. <laughs> this is the whole human race. Thank you very much. Hides in the trees. He hides in the trees as the first Adam. And Jesus as the second one doesn't hide in the trees. He hangs on one. He doesn't cover his shame. He scorns it on the cross. And he's maybe a little afraid of it at Gethsemane, but nevertheless, thy will be done. He guzzles the cup of suffering. He does the opposite of what Adam does, but what you and I want to do is hide. The big man on campus becomes a juvenile delinquent. In a matter of seconds, and he hides. And he looked for a place to hide. He didn't, he didn't know to plan it, but he looked for it when it happened. He looked for the best hiding place he could possibly find. And we do that also. We look for a place to hide. Now, we can hide right out in the open and still be hidden. We don't have to be in the trees. We can hide around deception. We can surround ourselves with deception. We can surround ourselves with denial. We can, we can clothe ourselves in, in a lie. We can, we can hide whatever we want to hide, whenever we want to hide it, right in front of everybody. Some of us are so skilled at it, we don't have to go off somewhere. We don't have to run away. We could run away and be right in front of you. We can hide, man. People know how to hide. But here's the thing. How can, 
Christ be our hiding place when he's a person. See? How can a person be a place? You are my hiding person, it should say. He says, you're my hiding place. Well, how does he become a place? If you knew how to answer that question, and you know how to experience the answer to that question, your life would change on a dime. I mean a dime, quickly. If I had one thing that I could wish for, pray for, want, long for, be desperate for, for this church, it would be this thing, this one thing. It would, it would be this one thing. I don't know if it's this church or every church. What do I know? This is where I go to church. I don't know what other churches do. But this one thing I would want for all of us, I would want it real bad. I would want you to want it real bad. I would want you to know what it means uh, to linger. I don't sense that we know how to linger. I, I don't sense we know how to tarry. We're not patient when it comes to the Spirit of God. We're, we don't tarry, we don't linger, we don't wait upon the Lord. And I know why. It's because the world has won this battle. The world has won this battle. The world has hurried up believers. The, the world has turned up the speed in which we live. Uh, there's a spirit behind it. It is a, a spirit of tyranny of the urgent. Uh, things that, that are, are not really urgent are now urgent. Things that used to be urgent are now twice as urgent. We live at a pace and we've been conditioned like fish in an aquarium, like we've been in this water so long, we don't realize how abnormal it is when it's held up to the scripture. We are in a hurry. We're in a hurry, so much in a hurry, we don't know we're in a hurry. That's a dangerous hurry. We are so hurried, so impatient when it comes to God that we have, not only have we conformed to the pattern of this world, not only have we done that, and not only should we repent of that, we have so conformed to the pattern of this world that we interact with our God as though he has conformed to the pattern of this world. We expect things of him instantaneously. We have want and longing for things that we expect him to just give it to us before we even ask. We are a hurried, hurried, hurried people. Even those of us who are sitting here saying, I don't think I'm hurried, you're hurried. 
You don't know how hurried you are when you start talking about the pace of life, the pace of movement of God, the pace of answering prayers, the methodical condition, intentionality of a God to bring a man to a brook and let him sit there for what we would think was a life sentence. We operate like a New York minute, and he operates on a totally different timetable. Totally different. And in our conformity, we've projected upon him our conformity as well, and now we have this confusion, which he's not the author of, by the way, and we don't know what it means to linger we, and you can see, if you're paying attention, I don't know if you're paying attention, if you're paying attention, I'm trying as a leader to slow you down. I'm trying to put the brakes on a service. I'm trying to get you to slow down and think. So, so often I think to myself, what are those people thinking? Then I realize they're not. They're not thinking. They don't have any time to think. They have no time to think, and if uh, they don't think. Most people don't think. I got a homeschool group that I'm teaching who's teaching me how to think. We call them the savants. They're so far ahead of us when it comes to not having conformed to the hurried pace. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. We've transformed God to our timetables. And sometimes we don't understand them because of that factor alone. We don't know what it means to tarry in prayer for revival. I've called people to this altar over the last 15 years hundreds of times, and I can guarantee you it gets to three minutes and, some, and most people are out of here. They ain't going to be up here more than three to four minutes. They're gone. They're, they vanish. It's like, who got raptured? I turn around, they're gone. No one tarries. No one waits upon the Lord. And we don't do it on purpose. We don't do it disrespectfully. We do it because we don't know anything else. That's what we do. So my, I, I'm, I'm leaping now to the conclusion when you go to your own homes and Open your own Bibles and do your own thing. My guess is, for many of us, not all, there is an insufficiency of a time investment in a relationship that's more important than any other. There's an insufficiency. How does a person, and this is how I know, I fight it in my own life. How does a person who is a hiding place become a place? How does a person become a place? I'm going to explain it to you. And in part, I'm mean, having to explain this to you in such a way that I hope you can understand, and that's not a demeaning statement at all. Many of you have never been taught this, ever. And if I could bullwhip all the people who never tossed you this, I'd seriously consider it. Hey, 
It's a tragedy. How does a person, Jesus Christ, become a place to hide? There is in this room, I mean literally in this room, and outside this room, and everywhere all over the world is the omnipresence of God. In other words, God is omni-world. God is ever-present everywhere, and the whole solitary universe, Milky Way, and beyond. What, and, the, and, and the universe that we're living in is expanding. Whatever it's expanding or encroaching into, he's there too. That'll blow your mind. The devil is not omnipresent. The devil is geographic. He's most intense and most consecrated in areas of the world where there's the most false worship. If you've ever been to Asia, you know what I'm talking about. The darkness is palpable where there's the most false worship. Filth is most present where there's the most false worship. Corruption in black market and bringing, taking things away from the poor is most prevalent where there is false worship. Okay? So you've got this omnipresent God who is a person everywhere. A presence. How does he become a place? When the omnipresence of God is manifested, it is, it is knowable, it is tangible, it is experiential. The presence that was here a moment ago now has intensified and it's on a different level of our awareness because we've worshiped, because we've confessed, because we've, we've adored him, because whatever, because we're in the word, whatever. Now that presence is knowable, experiential, on a different level than the general man of, uh, omnipresence of God. It's why you walk into a Bible study 30 minutes late and say something stupid that no one in the Bible study would say because the presence of God is different in the Bible study than you recognize when you walked in. Don't ever say anything when you walk into a Bible. Don't even open your mouth when you walk into church. You don't know what you're walking into. In the presence of God is the fullness of joy. The manifest presence of God. Okay, so there's a sensitivity that we to cultivate as people. There's a sensitivity to him, to his person, to his essence, to the Holy Spirit. There's a reverence, there's a respect. There's, there's things that we do to approach him that change our under, experiential understanding of his presence. Not all the time, not every time, but certainly available. It's where times... If you linger long enough, time seems to not even move. Um, you can read about it, and who knows how many different historic revivals. But if you have no idea what I'm talking about, take my, take my word for it for a few minutes. The person becomes a place. The place is an experience of the presence of God at a different level. All right. The hiding place becomes a physical place. The person becomes a place. 
If we could, as um, believers, accept that, what I just said, accept it, preliminarily accept what I just said, and then go test what I just said by reading the Bible. You know what I'm talking about. All right. What is it that's keeping us from understanding and experiencing the presence of God in that way? I mean, if you're going to shut down the church, the building of the kingdom of God, if your agenda is to eradicate the kingdom of God or any, any movement or growth and expansion of the kingdom of God, if you're the devil himself, what, what's, what would you do that would assure you the, the indoctrination of ineffectiveness in the church? How would you ruin the church? Well, the first thing is you, you would foster division. That's the first thing. The first thing to go when there's division is the anointing. The anointing is the power in the church. Have you ever been through a church split? You know what I'm talking about. It's ridiculous. Bickering and this and that, it's horrible. That's the absence of the spirit. Division. Jesus said it this way, a house divided cannot stand. How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the oil. It starts talking about the Holy Spirit. The unity, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There it is, Ephesians 4. Unity is a necessity to the presence of God and to the anointing on the church. If you don't have unity, you've got a serious, serious problem on your hands. Number two, I'd, I'd ruin the American family. I'd divide them up as quick as possible. Definitely, I would do that. I would remove authority figures in the home. I'd cause confusion about who's who, who's what, what are we doing, who am I? That kind of division in the family. Yeah, I would make enemies of people. Get the church to be against people. Get the church to label people, stereotype people, judge people. Um, I would get people and people's philosophy to be the enemy. If you could get people to be the problem and you could bring division in the church, you're pretty much on your way, especially if you got some kind of um, crowbar in the middle of the human and the American family. You're, you're on your way. You just have to make people the problem. Everybody that is a problem is a person. Not fl flesh and blood is the problem. Not the spirit behind the flesh and blood, but flesh and blood. I would make them the enemies. In total contradiction to Ephesians 6.12, I would look to depersonalize people. Depersonalize God and depersonalize people. I would use probably pornography and the sex trade would be the way to do that. I'd get women and children to feel like objects as quick, quick as possible. And I would get, I, I would sneak around and get injections into the church of apathy. Apathy will do it. Uh, if you get enough apathy going, no one's clothed in compassion and your ministry goes nowhere. Apathy. 
Indifference and apathy would do it. And then, to whomever is susceptible and vulnerable, I would make the love of money so important. I would make the love of money your identity, your value, your worth, your power, your status, your success, and I would use the love of money and as much money as possible to influence others, to buy others. I would do that because really all the other things come out of that root, the root of all evil. The objectification of men and women, the power struggles, I would make money the central thing. I would make it the most valuable thing. And you'd be on your way to ruining an entire society. And then I would get enough people in the pulpit. So little by little, nothing too fast, nothing too obvious. Start to distort and omit and incorrectly divide the truth. Just little by little, start throwing stuff out there that people want to hear that have never heard before, thinking that you're making progress and winning favor with people. I do that as much as possible, but I do it real strategically. And then I'd pick up the pace. I'd get everybody moving at a pace that they'd never moved at before. But I'd get them to do it so often, they'd never really realize they're moving that fast. They'd just be moving fast from one thing to another, and everything would be devalued. And every idol, every idol in the society would one at a time, when the people are most bought in, would start falling over. Money, lust, and people would become more and more desperate and start running around at twice the pace. Oh, they'd still pray, they'd still read, still go to church. That's not the point. That's not what's dangerous. They'd just do it ineffectively. They'd make it something they wanted to get over with as quick as possible and move on. I got three examples here that'll kind of, one of which will fall on deaf ears of half the people here because they have no idea what a phone booth is. So for, the, for those of you who don't know what a phone booth is, Google it after church. The rest of us will enjoy this brief story. Thank you. In a letter to his friends, hymn writer Wendell P. Lovelace related this story. One evening, a speaker was visiting the United States uh, wanted to make a telephone call. He entered a phone booth, but found it to be difficult for those in his own, diff different from those in his own country. It was beginning to get dark, so he had difficulty finding the number in the directory. Remember those things, the directory? You could kill somebody with one of those. Things about that big. He just, it was too dark in there. He noticed that there was a light in the ceiling, but he didn't know how to turn it on. And uh, as he tried again to find the number in the fading twilight, a passerby noted his plight and said, Sir, if you want to turn the light on, you have to shut the door. <laughs> Man, we're old. And to, the, to the visitor's amazement and satisfaction, when he closed the door, the booth was filled with light. He soon located the number and completed the call. In a similar way, when we draw aside in a quiet place to pray, we must block out our busy world and open our hearts to the Father. Our darkened world of disappointment and trials will then be illuminated. 
we will enter into communion with God. We will sense his presence and we'll be assured of his provision for us. Our Lord often went to be alone with the Heavenly Father. Sometimes it was after a busy day of preaching and healing. At other times it was uh, before making a major decision. It seems trite, doesn't it, that a pastor would stand in front of a congregation and really say, hey, listen, I just want to encourage you all. I just want to encourage you all to get some quiet time. It seems like, what, are you kidding me? Like, what, are you insulting me with this? I mean, I came over here for this? I came all the way over here today for you to tell me I need quiet time? Yeah, actually, I am. I am. But the time isn't always measured by the volume. Time is measured by the tarrying, the waiting. We've, we've uh, replaced tarrying and waiting on the Lord with a few odd moments of awkward silence. Boy, we missed it. He is worth waiting on. How frustrated he must be with me in particular. Gary, if you just would have pressed in a little bit longer, you would have grabbed the horns of the altar and waited on me just a little bit longer. You'd be basking in glory right now. But you've put me on par with somebody who answers you at the same pace you want everyone else to answer you. And you weren't ready for what I had to say. Son, you weren't ready for what I had to say. So you missed it. You went on. And you satisfied yourself with the religious activity of being quiet for a few moments and reading a few verses of Scripture. As wonderful as that is, son, you know better. I've taught you better. You need to tarry. You need to wait. You need to press in. You need to grab the horns of the altar. If you want me to show you what you want me to show you, then you have to be prepared for me to show it to you. I'm not a drive-in. I'm not a drive-in restaurant. I offer up full course meals. You need to learn to tarry if you want to pastor this church. Learn to tarry and teach them to tarry. And stop treating me like I'm a part of this world out here. It gets, gives no attention to one another whatsoever, so whatever bone you throw somebody, they're, they're grateful that you actually paid attention. <laughs> because I'm not that way. And please don't make me that way. I'm not changing. You are. Learn to tarry. You'll seek me, and you'll find me, when you seek me with all your heart. Not 10%, not 20. When you love me with all your heart, when you tarry, when you wait on me, you will mount up with wings as eagles and you will soar above problems, but learn to tarry. I can't be a place for you to tarry. I can't be that hiding place unless you move into my presence. Confess, cleanse, have clean hands and a pure heart. Come to me. You, you won't be disappointed, but you need to learn how to tarry.
Early African converts to Christianity were earnest and regular in private devotions. Each one reportedly had a separate spot in the thicket where he would pour out his heart to God. Over time, the paths to these places became well known. As a result, if one of these believers began to neglect prayer, it was soon apparent to the others. They would kindly remind the the negligent one, Brother, the grass grows on your path. (laughs) That's a bummer. You got to have a weed eater if you're not going to spend much time in devotion. You got grass growing on your path, friend. You're not. Uh, you're not lingering. You're not tarrying. Nobody wants to hear this. This comes from 1989. Remember that? Oh, actually, we can, we're here. We are here. We are. We can say this comes from another century. One hour of quiet concentration in any business can be worth two hours of normal working time. According to the management of a Denver business, quoted in a success magazine, interruptions are the biggest enemy of creativity. $30 million architectural firm did this. To minimize the inevitable interruptions in the firm's large open offices, they came up with the idea that it's Familiar for kids, more familiar for kids than uh, corporations. The quiet hour. Every morning from 10 to 11 a.m., no one in that company, including the principals, may communicate with anyone else inside or outside the office. Basically, we're sitting at our desk for that hour, says Desmond, who makes allowances for emergency phone calls. We try to focus totally on our clients' designs. Intentionally, 25 employees balked at the concept. Management had to explain that this was not a response to bad work habits. It was a vehicle to make a concentrated, even more rigorous effort to be creative. Nobody liked it to start with, but they actually instituted an afternoon version of the eight one-hour quiet time in their corporation. We are being ripped off. And we are allowing ourselves to be ripped off of one of the most important principles and ingredients to having a deep, satisfying, sufficient, gratifying, devoted relationship with God. And he created it, and we're not stewarding it. It's called time. We don't have enough for him but we have enough for everything else. And our country and our culture is paying for it deeply, deeply expensive bills and invoices or spiritual invoices are coming in. The church doesn't have time. Wait here, he says. Wait here and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In today's context, we would have said, how long, Lord? Till lunch? No, 10 days. Wait here. 10 days. 10 days? Yeah. 10 days. We've taken this Bible and we've Twisted it some, friends. We've contorted it some. 
If you look at the church of the United States of America, you don't see a whole lot of fasting. You don't see a whole lot of tarrying. We used to. Years ago, when the 24-hour prayer thing started, House of Prayer in Kansas City started, I thought, yeah. I had a youth group of 130 kids that wouldn't want to go home because it meant not praying with their friends for revival. And I thought, wow. The International House of Prayer. And I hope, I hope it's wrong. But its founder is now being accused of moral failure. Where are we? What are we doing? What are we doing? Checking boxes when we need to tarry. Now, this kind of message, you don't just uh, knee-jerk reaction, say, okay, I need to tarry more. You need to get with the Lord and see if I know what I'm talking about. That's the first thing you need to do. So does that guy know what he's talking about? Is that of the Lord? Because if you want a hiding place, a true place, then you want to be enveloped in the manifest presence of God to pray without ceasing at times. That's where that comes from. Because the presence is so palpable, so weighty, so tangible, so real. It's not lasting forever, but it's enough to bring you to a point of desperate intercession and tarrying before the Lord, which is what he wants. My goodness gracious, have we changed who he is to fit more like what our world is? If that's the case, the first thing is we need to be aware. And we need to confess. And we need to repent. This isn't about us. This is about a lost and dying world. Righteousness exalts a nation. Look at the nation, and the nation will tell you how much righteousness there is. They're not the enemy. They're not the enemy. There's a spirit behind them that has turned up our speedometer slowly, one mile per hour at a time. And now we evaluate our prayer life by the existence of a prayer not the earnestness of it, nor the interaction we have with the Lord. We're doing prayer and missing the being of prayer.
Those are two different things. The communicants come forward. If what I shared with you is truly a problem, I can assure you the solutions at this table, in part. We serve an unhurried God who moved in the sovereignty of the Father at the right time, in the right place, for the right purpose, every single time. And had to slow people down more often than he had to speed them up. And maybe there's something there for us. We have many important things in our life, but none is important is lingering and tarrying before our God on his time, not ours. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, take it, this is my body broken for you. Did not say this, but it, this body will be broken at the exact moment the Father determines it will be broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. Drink ye all of it for the forgiveness of sin. I can't think of a better person to linger before. And by lingering, I can't think of a better place created to do so before him. To every Martha, in the sound of my voice, please come into the living room and sit at the feet of your Lord and tarry. In Jesus' name. Amen. Examine yourself, friend, before you come to the two people in front of you. Take the bread, dip it in the cup. It's the body and the blood of Christ. Amen. Amen.